Welcome to Our Weird World. I'm your host, John Henson. Uh, I just, I guess I just don't do cold opens anymore. Uh, not, honestly, you know, trying to keep some, the episode lengths down just a little bit because your boy is on a time limit with the podcast host. I get a certain amount of time every month and, uh, you know, that Alamo episode took up quite a bit of it. So, um, that being said, uh, this week, uh, starting a two-part series on just several stories about some unreal survival stories. Yeah, that makes sense. Good job. Um, so yeah, <laughs> looking at five stories this week, um, looking at the stories of Violet Jessup, Norman Allistad, Jean Hilliard, uh, Mauro Prosperi, and Bill Morgan. Let's get into it. Our first story is of Violet Jessup, who was born in Argentina in 1887, was the first of nine children born to Irish immigrants. Now, I get that it sounds kind of odd that an Irish family immigrated to Argentina, but it happened. You know, not everyone immigrates to the United States. So maybe if that feels weird to you, you should be a little more open minded about how the world works. Okay, I don't know why I'm so aggressive starting out, but I am. Uh, Violet then moved to England at age 16 after her father died and um, began caring for her youngest sister while her mother was off at sea uh, working as a stewardess on cruise liners. Um, Her mother eventually fell ill as well, and so Violet decided to drop out of school and follow her mother's career path as a stewardess. So in 1910, Violet got a job working as a stewardess on the RMS Olympic, which at the time was the largest civilian ship. Uh, in September of 1911, 1911, I don't know why I said 19 and 11. In September of 1911, uh, the Olympic collided with the British warship, the HMS Hawk. Um, but fortunately for everyone on board, the ship made it back to port without sinking. Everything was fine. Uh, the next year, uh, Violet got a job on a boat named the RMS Titanic. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, I already know how this story is going to end, so just skip to the next one. So I will. Uh, Norman Allistad Jr. was now just kidding. I'll finish the story. <laughs> That'd be weird if I did that, right? Just like, oh, you guys already know how this is going to end, so why even bother? Um, four days, obviously, into the Titanic's voyage, struck an iceberg, started to sink. Uh, Violet was ordered to the deck to serve as an example of how to behave for all of the non-English speakers who didn't understand why all of the British people were freaking out. Um, just so much insanity going on while that, because like, I mean, look, like a lot of the people on the Titanic, very wealthy, uh, the ship's going down, they're freaking out, but also a lot of people, especially who were down in like fourth class, uh, they didn't speak in English and they weren't entirely sure what was going on because they also didn't really understand English. And so Violet's just up there, like basically ordered to keep calm and just kind of try to show people how they should be acting and to ignore all of the chaos going on around them. 
she was eventually ordered into lifeboat number 16 and was actually handed just a random baby to take care of, which is kind of sad, but also weird. Um, the next morning, she and the rest of the survivors were rescued by the RMS Carpathia. Um, as Violet was sitting on the Carpathia, a woman just ran up and grabbed the baby from Violet and ran away. Um, Violet assumed it was the baby's mother or it could have just been a random woman who was looking for a replacement baby because the other one had drowned. We don't know. No one knows. Um, when World War I began, Violet then served as a stewardess for the British Red Cross on the HMHS Britannic, uh, which was a hospital ship at the time. Well, guess what happened, you guys? Uh, on November 21st, 1916, the Britannic either hit a German mine or was struck by a torpedo and sank in less than an hour. But again, Violet was able to board a lifeboat. Uh, but the but the sinking ship's propellers actually created so much force that it began sucking the lifeboats underwater. So she was forced to jump out of the lifeboat and then in that process hit her head and suffered a severe head injury like should have been dead. But instead, she got rescued and made it back to the mainland. Um, she ended up dying 55 years later of congestive heart failure after having survived, uh, three, I mean, you can maybe call it four, uh, you know, water related disasters on ships. Like, I don't know. I think after the first ship I'm on, like almost sinks, I'm not getting on the Titanic. And if I do, if I am so dumb or desperate enough to get on the Titanic, I'm never getting on another ship ever again. So I don't know. Good for Violet, I guess. Uh, now we'll talk about Norman Allistad, uh, Jr., technically, uh, who was born on May 30th, 1967, uh, and raised in Malibu, California. His dad, Norman Allistad Sr., was a former child actor and turned FBI agent, uh, and he forced his kid into surfing and skiing at a very young age because Norman Allistad Sr. knew how rich and famous uh, professional surfers and skiers were and that they were like the most popular people on the planet, right? Obviously. Um, but not everything was just so gnarly and radical for Norman Jr., right, bro? Um, his parents got divorced and his mom immediately jumped into a relationship with this super cool bro named Nick who was just constantly drunk and actually forced Norman Jr. to fight other kids in the neighborhood. Which that's, I don't know, that's got to be pretty fun. Uh, shortly after winning the uh, Southern California Slalom Skiing Competition or Championship at age 11, uh, Norman Jr. was in a plane flying over the San Gabriel Mountains in a chartered Cessna with his father and a woman named Sandra, his father's new girlfriend. Now, uh, as you might expect with the overall theme of this episode, uh, that plane then smacked the side of an 8,600 foot mountain, killing his father and the pilot immediately. Um, Sandra survived, but had a dislocated shoulder and a, and a pretty big gash on her forehead. Now during the crash or in the immediate aftermath of the crash, one of the plane's wings lodged itself into the base of a tree, which kind of, you know, worked out because it allowed Norman to bring Sandra over to that spot 
where it was basically like this makeshift shelter. Um, and they were able to use that wing as protection from the driving snow in the middle of a blizzard, which was why the plane crashed in the first place. Uh, after waiting for over an hour, a rescue helicopter arrived at the crash site. Um, Norman jumped out into the clearing to try to get the uh, the chopper's attention, but the pilot didn't see him and just left. Like the 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 rescue pilot just kind of assumed everyone was dead. Um, the conditions were too bad to do a search and rescue, so they just they just bounced. Um, when the storm calmed, uh, Norman Jr. spotted a cabin way down at the base of the mountain they were on. But by the time that he had kind of mapped his route down to the bottom, the storm had returned and it was even stronger than it was before. But Norman Jr., like he didn't care at this point, like he's he's committed to this. So he put Sandra, a full grown woman on his 11 year old back. Remember, he's 11 years old when this is all happening and proceeded to just crawl down the mountain on his stomach, which is insane. Like 11 year olds are pretty small, full grown women, slightly bigger than an 11 year old boy. All right. And then to crawl 8,000 some odd feet down a mountain is mind boggling. I cannot wrap my head around that. All right. Um, however, you know, Norman wasn't that great. Like Sandra eventually like fell off and was forced to use her own strength to crawl. Um, and that worked for like a few minutes before, uh, she accidentally like crawled into like this, you know, chute where like this rock formation had gotten really steep and, and then like figured down and she accidentally crawled into that and then just like fell down the mountain and died. So that's traumatic. Um, but with this inconvenience, Norman Jr. decided to make a little detour and then spent the next hour um, crawling down that chute himself to find Sandra and then just make sure she was actually dead. Because, like, he's a good kid, you know, probably didn't want to just get down to the bottom of the mountain and just, like, assume Sandra was dead when really she was just, like, clinging to life somewhere that could have where she could have been saved. But no, like, she was actually dead. Um Seven hours later, Norman finally made it to that cabin and got rescued. Um, afterward, uh, he moved to St. Anton in Austria, where he became the exact opposite of an extreme athlete. He became a writer. That's a little joke at myself, right? Because I'm a writer, can't skateboard to save my life, right? So I would love to. I would love to be able to. I would love to be able to surf and snowboard. Can't do any of those things. Because I have bad balance. And, you know, I'm coordinated enough to do it. Just uh, just my, my big old body doesn't allow for that to happen. Um, so that's that. All right. Our next story is of Gene Hilliard, who on December 20th, 1980, was driving home uh, from a night out near her hometown of Lingby, Minnesota, which is just a, a humming metropolis of 86 people. And at some point along the way, uh, Jean's car broke down in the freezing air and just stopped working, which I imagine happens a lot up north, especially in the winter, where it's just like so cold. Machines are just like, no, not happening, bro. Not at all. Um, but rather than wait it out the rest of the night in what was left of the warm air in her car, Jean got out and started walking. 
Now, she knew, based on where she was, that her friend's house was less than two miles away and that she should, you know, ostensibly be able to make it. However, 15 feet from the door, Jean collapsed and no one at the house knew she was outside. Uh, Over the next six hours, the temperature outside fell to minus 22 degrees Fahrenheit. And when her friend woke up the next morning and found her at 7 a.m., Jean was literally frozen solid. Um, They rushed her to the hospital in the next town over because obviously a town of 86 people is not going to have a hospital. Um, Doctors tried to pierce her skin with a hypodermic needle, but her skin was so frozen that they could not penetrate it. Um, Her body temperature was so low that it didn't even register on a thermometer. Um, She did, however, have a pulse, though it was only 12 beats per minute. Her heart was beating 12 times a minute, which is pretty slow. It's like, what, like five times a second or five? No, not five times a second. Is that five? I don't know math, man. That can't be right. I don't think that's how pulses work. (sighs) Anyway, um, within minutes, Jean's family had gathered at the hospital and started praying because like, what else are you going to do at that point? Um, doctors wrapped her in an electric blanket to try to bring her back. And two hours later, Jean began having just these really violent convulsions as her body, like basically reset. And then like after several minutes, like everything was back to normal. Um, she spent the next 49 days in the hospital, like as a precaution, and as like a medical marvel, but she made a full recovery. And like, even though she was severely frostbitten, she didn't have any like permanent physical or mental damage from it. Like she just got frozen outside and then was totally fine after that, which is not what's supposed to happen. Um, our next story here is of Mauro Prosperi, who was an Italian police officer in the mid nineties, which means uh, he didn't really do anything important as it relates to like American historical relevance. Uh, And so to pass the time, because apparently there's just no crime in Italy. uh, Morrow became a pentathlete and signed up for just all sorts of marathons. Uh, In 1994, Morrow and his cousin, James Dutchkin, which uh, that's got to be through marriage, um, entered the marathon de sable, de de sables, Marathon Disables in Morocco, which was this six-day event that meandered 156 miles through the Sahara Desert. I, like, I, why Why even do that? Who comes up with this idea? Who sat down and was like, hey, guys, you know marathons and, like, how much they suck? Well, what if we did that but, like, 5 x the length and just made people like run through the Sahara Desert. You know the Sahara Desert, like one of the hottest places on the planet. Just make them run for like six six days, and just let's see what happens. They'll do it. People will sign up for that. Um, now, obviously, you would expect something tragic to happen. And uh, four days into this race, a massive sandstorm swept through the course. I don't even know how you have a course out in the desert. It's just run. 
Um, but this sandstorm caused Maro and his cousin to become severely disoriented. But rather than stop and wait for help, per the competition rules, Maro decided to keep running because he's stubborn, Italian, and also a man. Man ain't going to wait for nobody. <clears throat> um, he felt pretty confident he was going the right way. Uh, you know, back to the, the finish line in Morocco. But instead, uh, he was headed towards a completely different country. He was headed towards Algeria, which was not the way he was supposed to be going. Um, within a day, uh, Morrow had run out of rations, pun for sure intended. Um, luckily, he found, it, uh, he found an abandoned Muslim shrine, which was inhabited by the corpse of a dead holy man. Creepy mildly comforting but probably not helpful um and for the next couple of days morrow survived by drinking his own urine and that was literally the only thing he had like he didn't have any solid food other than like the few bats that were hanging out inside the shrine and so like he went all bear grills on those like cap like caught the bats with his bare hands decapitated them I don't know how he would decapitate them other than pulling their heads off, which is insane. And then he would just eat the eat the raw guts and and drink the blood. Nice. You know, obviously, but this wasn't the life like Morrow wanted to live for the rest of his life. And so assuming he would never be rescued, he pulled out his knife. So maybe that's what he used to decapitate the bats. Um, and, and he tried to slit his wrist. Um, unfortunately for Morrow, I guess he, he was so dehydrated that his blood was too thick to just drain out of his body. Um, eventually a rescue plane and a rescue helicopter flew by, but neither one of them saw him. But at that point, Morrow was like, Hey, I'm going to leave or whatever. He sounds like he's Italian. And so he regained his will to live. He's running on raw bat energy and he sets back off into the desert. And for the next nine days, all right, the marathon is long over at this point, but Morrow survived on reptiles, insects, and cactus. Um, he finally came across a small oasis and found a footprint, which, um, then led him to a, a group of goats. And these goats were accompanied by this little girl who then ran to her family to alert them that this probably very horrifying looking guy, probably emaciated, sunburned, gross looking person had arrived. Um, the family though, very kind. They took Morrow in, gave him some goat milk and nursed him back to health until, uh, the Algerian government <laughs> came to rescue him. Like somehow this dude had managed to get over 180 miles off course and he had lost 40 pounds in the process. And like people who run marathons, they do not have 40 pounds to lose. All right. So, I, yeah, he probably looked real bad. And here's the thing. In 1998, Morrow re-entered this race again, probably because he's an idiot. 
All right. But here's the thing. Uh, along the way, he uh, in, uh, he stubbed his toe, which comparatively a lot better than just getting lost. But he couldn't finish the race again. But guess what? He entered it again in 2012. But this time he was able to finish. He finished in 34 and a half hours uh, in 131st place. But still, I mean, to go like two weeks or more, like insane to then just like start bear grills and bats and then killing reptiles and drinking cactus juice and all that kind of stuff just out in the middle of the desert. Insane. Just insane. Uh, Our final story here is of Bill Morgan, who in 1998 was driving a truck down an Australian highway when he got into a real bad accident. And I mean, like, look, you know, if you don't know, you know, like, especially once you get into like the outback in Australia, you get these long two lane roads, people are speeding, they fall asleep, maybe they're drunk and, and just these really violent collisions happen all the time. Um, but basically, and that's kind of what happened to Bill. Like he, you know, maybe he fell asleep and flipped over in a ditch. Maybe he collided head on with another truck driver. Who knows? Um, no, no one knows because Bill didn't remember anything that happened. And people just kind of came across, came upon him uh, after the accident. Um, but as doctors helped him recover, they just decided, I guess, to just not check his charts. And they accidentally gave him some medication that caused a severe allergic reaction. And Bill was actually dead for 14 minutes before doctors were actually able to revive him. Um, But then he immediately fell into a coma. Um, So because doctors like always know what happens in these situations, they encouraged Bill's family to just go ahead and turn off life support and put him out of his misery for good. Because according to the doctors and their vast medical knowledge, like even if Bill did come out of this coma, being dead for 14 minutes tends to cause a lot of permanent brain damage. And doctors kind of just assume that Bill, if he came back, would just end up being a living vegetable. But Bill's family didn't care about what doctors thought and decided to transfer him to another hospital whose doctors were a little less homicidal. Um, which granted I'm all for doctor assisted suicide. Like you, if you want to leave, leave, you know? And I think if a doctor thinks you should leave also leave, whatever, there's plenty of, there's plenty of people, right? A couple of people will be sad if you die, but like life keeps going dog. Who cares? Anyway, I don't know why I went on that tangent, but 12 days later, Bill woke up from his coma And even crazier, he was completely fine. And even crazier, Bill's life got way better. A few months after he was out of the hospital, Bill proposed to his longtime girlfriend, Lisa Wells. Uh, She said yes. And feeling pretty lucky, feeling like he's having a pretty good day, Bill went down to the local store and bought the last $5 scratch-off ticket on the reel. And to his surprise he realized he had won a $17,000 car. And 
when the mail uh, when the Melbourne News heard about this story, they kind of contacted him, wanted him to do a feature, and they asked him to just kind of reenact the part where he had played the lottery. So like, you know, we're doing this, we're filming some B roll, we're oh, we're recounting, oh, he just proposed to his girlfriend, and then he go- then he goes down to the country store and he goes and plays the lotto, you know. And Bill does that. He's reenacting it. He buys. He literally just buys another lottery ticket, and this time. He wins $170,000, which if you believe in karma, great ending to this story because he's dead, goes from being dead for 14 minutes and doctors being like, hey, just let him die all the way to gets proposed, wins a car, plays the lottery again, and then gets almost $200,000. Incredible. See, so uplifting, so inspiring that things can happen. I don't know, man. Um, Let's just, uh, let's see what we learned today. What did we learn? Number one, I know that was a weak segue into this segment, but this is hard work. All right. I can't be creative a hundred percent of the time, especially on the fly, because I don't script this out. I'm just going with it. All right. Anyway, number two, uh, Mauro Prosperi, giant stubborn idiot, somehow survived uh, two weeks in the Saharan desert and then reentered the race that almost killed him two more times. And then he finished. So I don't know. Maybe there's a lesson in perseverance there. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Last and then uh, number three, uh, Bill Morgan dead for 14 minutes, and then turns it all around in a matter of like a few months to get married and win the lottery twice. So that's, I mean, what are the odds, right? Next week on Our Weird World, we got five more stories of uh, just insane survivals. Uh, we're looking at the stories of William Rankin, Fran Salak, Cliff Judkins, Titus Hill, and Harrison O'Keen. And they're going to be just as nuts as the ones this week. So get ready for that. Thank you all for listening and um, you know all of the nice things that you say. I uh, appreciate that. And so, you know, if you want to just tell your friends about the show and get them to listen, that'd be neat too, right? But most importantly, keep it weird.